The following sermon is by Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Steve. Amen, church. Let's take our Bible and turn back to the New Testament book of Acts. I want to find your place in Acts chapter number 9, but we're really going to kind of look at um, Acts 7, 8, and 9 today. So we have been in the middle of a series going through the book of Acts, and then we got to chapter number 6, and remember we talked about the church structure, what church ought to look like, and so we took a few weeks uh, to do some teaching on what elders are, elders, pastors, overseers, bishops. These are the same uh, basic uh, synonyms, these are the same words in the New Testament, and so um, the New Testament church should be elder-led, right, or pastors-led, elder-led, and it should be uh, deacons serve, and it should be because we're Baptists, there are no committees in the Bible, but because we're Baptists and we have committees, we are committee assisted and congregationally affirmed. So elder led, deacons serve, uh, committee assisted, and uh, congregationally affirmed. So we talked about that for a few weeks, what elders ought to look like and deacons ought to look like and those qualifications and the godliness and the pursuit, the heart to, to serve and to help God's people. And so now we we found our way back here into the book of Acts, and what we're going to do is kind of put a caboose on a stopping point in Acts today. We'll start next week with our Advent series that will run all the way through Christmas Day uh, or Christmas Eve, and then in the new year, we'll pick back up into the book of Acts, so give us a little bit of a break. So I'm going to try today to maybe give you a summary of three chapters, seven, eight, and nine, and don't worry, we will be out of here no later than 3.30, and... Uh, Why y'all laugh at me like that? No, I'm just messing with you. We want to try and kind of bring these uh, these chapters to a close. So uh, I want you to notice one verse of Scripture, nine, uh, chapter 9, verse number 31. Verse 32 goes on with chapter number 10, and so we'll leave that, pick that up in the new year. But verse number 31 of chapter number 9, uh, look at this verse with me. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up or edified, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So would you back up just a few chapters to chapter number 6 and look at verse number 7 of chapter 6, and you'll notice that this is very much has the same repeating phrases that you just read. Verse number 7 of chapter number 6, the Word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And then back up, if you would, to chapter number 2, and verse number 46 and 47. You'll notice again very similar language here in the book of Acts. These are what are known as summary statements, and you'll find them all the way through this book. As Luke writes, he kind of gives you a summary in each of these sections of what is going on. Look at verse 46 and 47 of chapter number 2. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to the number day by day those who were being saved. Back in chapter number 9, let me read verse 31 for you again. 
We'll pray over this summary statement and then we'll see how the Lord has unfolded this. Verse number 31, chapter number 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Would you pray with me for a moment? Our Father, we bring our attention to this text today. And really, we're going to kind of work backwards. We're going to look at chapter 9 and 8 and 7. And I pray, Lord, as we put these pieces together in Your Word, that we would be this kind of church, this New Testament church, that is fulfilling that Acts 8 1-8 responsibility to take the good news to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, Lord, that we would be making the name of Jesus famous in Raleigh and around the world. And Lord, as we become the kind of church that is faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection, life everlasting with Him, that You would bring us into unity, into peace, into growth, both both spiritually and numerically, that You would make us a city set on a hill in this community, Lord, that we might shine the gospel light to men and women and boys and girls all around our church and in our community, that they might trust Jesus and have everlasting life in the future and eternal life now, serving together with Your people in Your church, in Your place. And we will love You and thank You for it, for it is in the name of Jesus Christ we do pray. Amen. I draw your attention there once more, just so you keep this in your mind as we back up. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, you remember in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, said, you'll receive power after that the Spirit of God has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so in this first nine chapters here, we see that they are fulfilling the very word of the living God that the Spirit of God has empowered empowered them, has helped them, has made them capable as they have surrendered their lives to Him, and they are now proclaiming the good news, the saving news of Jesus Christ. They are doing so in Judea and Galilee and in Samaria, and you'll see that from chapter 10 on to chapter number 28, they make it to the ends of the known earth at that time, for you find that in Romans 20, or in Acts 28, Paul finds himself in prison in Rome, and in that day and time, Rome was referred to as the ends of the earth. And we understand today in our culture and in our time that we not only take the gospel to the ends of Rome, but we take the gospel to the ends of the entire known world. That men and women, boys and girls all around the world can hear the good name of Jesus Christ. Amen? And be saved to the uttermost from all of our sin and all of our shame and all of the skeletons that lie in the backgrounds of our closets. That Christ redeems us from who we are, and He gives us a new heart and a new life to live for Him. Now, how did we get to verse number 31 where it says here that they enjoyed peace, that they were being built up, and that they were going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort and the power of the Holy Spirit, and they continued to increase. Well, let's back up. I'm going to just give you a phrase to remember chapter 9, chapter 8, and chapter 7, and then I'll just point out maybe three things in chapter 7 that we can practically take away from here today. All right? So in chapter number 9, if you just want to maybe make a... um, make a little phrase out of how to remember that. Chapter 9 is all about Saul becoming brother Saul. 
It's about Saul becoming brother Saul. Now we know in the chapters to come that Saul ends up with a name change. Isn't that right? And somebody tell me, yell it out to me, what's his name become? Paul, man, you guys are biblical scholars. Look at you. So in chapter number 9, you'll find that Saul, look here if you would. Let me just point out a few things. Look at the inclusio or the bookend that happens in verse number 1 and then verse number 26. Verse number 1 of chapter number 9. Now Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is, to the Christian way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here is Saul. He is in Jerusalem. He's about to go out from Jerusalem. He's going to go into all of that region and into Damascus. He's going to find men and women who are serving Jesus. He's going to bring them back and basically tar and feather them, beat them to pieces, maybe even be consensualizing unto their death, even to the murder of those who were in the Christian way. That's the way the chapter begins. Now look at how it ends in verse number 26. And when he came to Jerusalem, he he comes back to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and not believing that he was a disciple. Brothers and sisters, I would say to you that from chapter number 9, we understand this. If we want to be the kind of church that has peace and rest and comfort and power and that we are affecting and living in our community, that there must come a conversion moment in our lives where we go from being Saul who is breathing out threats and accusations and murders against God's people until we have that Damascus Road kind of conversion with Jesus Christ. And when He comes back to Jerusalem, instead of leaving to destroy the disciples, he comes back to associate with them and love them and become one of them. And that's what true conversion does to us. I was pause for a moment and just kind of teach for just a second. Or we're kind of intimate, family time, you know, we don't have any activities going on tonight. And I know this is kind of Thanksgiving weekend, but all of us here, I just want to, I just want to share with you for a moment. If you read that first 25 verses of chapter number nine, You find a guy who is lost and undone without Jesus Christ, and he is antagonistic against Christ and the people who serve him. And he has this experience on the road where he comes to Jesus. And his life is never the same. And I just want to kind of set this in your lap as family and friends. If you're the kind of person who's been religious all of your life, You kind of grew up a little bit in church. You know what the Bible says. You kind of own one. You even wear the right kind of clothes, whatever that means when you go to church. You know all of the religious trappings, but your life has never had a turning point where you were serving yourself and serving your idols and you came to serve the living Jesus of heaven and He became the sole most important factor in your life that loving and knowing Jesus Christ is the most important thing in your life. You're lost. You cannot come to Jesus and leave the same. I would submit to you that there might be some people in here today that have been members of this church for a long time. You might have got dunked in the baptismal waters, signed a card, been in Sunday school, but you've just kind of played church and played religion and played all of these games, trying to live right, do right, do all these things. If I just have all of that, that somehow that's enough. And what I want you to understand is God is not impressed with any of those things. 
Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man, woman, boy or girl sows, that shall they also reap. Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, were we not a preacher? Did we not prophesy in Your name? Did we not do all of these wonderful and great works? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew You. He said, Pastor, are you trying to scare me? Maybe just a weedy little bit. I don't want to make you doubt your salvation. What I do want to do is shake you by the collar a little bit and say, is what you have real? You say, how would I know if what I have is real? If I really have come to Jesus, I've really had one of those moments where I've moved from being a Saul to a brother Saul. You say, where do you get that? Later on in the chapter, God says Ananias to Saul, and he says, I don't want to go. That guy kills people. And God says, no, I want you to go, and I want you to talk to him because the scales have fallen from his eyes. I've given him a new heart, and he is going to suffer many things for my name and carry the gospel to the Gentile world. And Ananias goes to him, and he says, Brother Saul, he greets him as a Christian along the way. And I just want to say to you and maybe pry into your life and ask you this, in the last seven days, how much correspondence have you had with Jesus? Now, I mean, really, I'm talking about verbal, submissive, you're the king of my heart. I want to serve you kind of conversations. When you wake up every day, is the most important thing to make sure that you're happy and that you get your way and that life goes just so for you? Or do you wake up every day and in your heart you know that God has saved you from your sin and you want to serve King Jesus the rest of your life? Do you have that kind of joy, that kind of peace, that kind of power that's on the inside? If you don't, I would question in your heart, do you really know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life? We're going to speak... Uh, next week and moving on about the Advent season. And my, one of the greatest fears that I have is around this time of year, everybody gets emotional. Everybody watches all those movies on the Hallmark. Y'all watch the Hallmark Channel? Man, there is a Christmas secret, Christmas train, Christmas... Di- I mean, there's all... I mean, it is... I'm telling you, it is sappy to the core. We all get... And, and I think around this time of year, many of you, you you're kind of like Ricky Bobby. Your favorite Jesus is the baby Jesus. You know what I mean? Some of you got that, some of you didn't. I want you to be real careful that Thanksgiving and Christmas is not just a religious sentimentality for you, but that every day of the year you have come to a conversion moment in your life somewhere along the line where you, like Saul, had scales fall from your spiritual eyes and said, I am a sinner, I am a failure, and I am in need of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And you gave Him your whole heart and life, and you serve Him. Chapter 9. It's all about Saul becoming brother Saul. It's all about having that conversion moment in our life where we stop trusting ourselves and we start trusting Jesus Christ. If we want our church... 
to be like chapter 9 and verse number 31 where we are filled with the Holy Spirit and with grace and with peace and the church is continually growing and unified together, then we have to be the kind of people both inwardly and outwardly that we are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, that He is not just an ornament, that He is not just a nativity set, that He is not just a good idea or somebody who lived a long time ago that we think would make a good teacher, but He is the Lord and the Master and the Savior of your life. And if you're in this room today and your life is upside down and inside out and you sense a degree of chaos and as I'm speaking, you're either frustrated or convicted and you know something in your life is not right, what I'm telling you is give up, lay down your weapons, stop fighting with your ego and your pride and your intellect and fall in your heart to Jesus and say, save me. My marriage is going to crack. My, my, my family is going away. My problems are happening in my life. I need you. Did you do that today? I say, man, it's a Sunday after Thanksgiving. I'm not sure that I was prepared for that. I just want you to know that chapter number 9 is all about this conversion of a guy named Saul who is breathing out murders and God was able to save someone who would be consenting to the death of believers and give them a heart change. And when he comes back, he's ready to love and to live in the community of the disciples. What about you? Chapter number 8, let me point out a couple of things as we keep backing up a little bit. If you want to maybe give a tagline to chapter number 8, I would say it's Philip and the phony. Philip and the phony. Look, look at chapter 8, if you would, for a moment. You'll notice in verse number 5, the Bible says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming. What did he begin proclaiming? Christ to them. You say, what is the vision statement of our church that we proclaim the gospel and reflect the kingdom? You say, we're not just making something up here. This is what we do. We proclaim Jesus Christ and we live like Him. And then look at verse number 6 and, and following down through 9 and 10. This is important. It says that the uh, crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which were being performed. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them and shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. And now watch. Now there was a man whose name was Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, what does it say? Look at the repeating word that was in verse number 6. They were giving Him attention. You see, in verse number 6, these people who got saved were giving the Word and the proclamation of Jesus the attention. But now they're giving this magician their attention. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to Him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. Kill, keep that in your mind. Many people were being saved. And then look at verse number 13. Interesting. We're going to camp here just for a minute or two so I can give you some explanation. Verse number 13. Even Simon himself believed. Wow. And after believing, he was baptized. And he continued on with Philip. And he observed these signs and great miracles that took place. And they were constantly amazed. Well, the boys come to town to help them out with the Spirit of God. And I want you to notice, uh, pick up with me in verse number 18 and watch about this guy Simon. 
Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay hands or my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter, Peter always had a strong word. I, I, I don't think tact was exactly Peter's spiritual gift, but he just lays it right out for him. But Peter says, May your silver perish with you. Could you imagine a preacher saying that to somebody in a congregation today? <laughs> May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, look what he says. He doesn't answer with his own prayer for forgiveness and repentance. You pray. Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, brothers and sisters, for lack of time, uh, we won't have time to expound the rest of the chapter, but what you'll find is Philip is then taken uh, to the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch who is coming back from worship. He's riding on his chariot, okay? He's up there, and he's reading the Isaiah scroll. He's reading the book of Isaiah. Philip was running. Apparently, Philip must have been in shape. He's jog like this man right here. Okay, all right. Again, the smiles, you don't need to do that, right? Philip's jogging alongside the eunuchs up there. He's reading the Isaiah scroll. And Philip says what every preacher does. He says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch looks down. He says, how can I understand unless somebody explains it to me? And he invites Philip to come up. And that's exactly what preaching is, is that how are you going to understand unless somebody explains the word of God to you? And that's the means by which God is always used. So Philip climbs up into the chariot with the eunuch and he begins at that point to preach to him Jesus. What's going on in chapter 8 is this, and you can read it when you go home. It's a great contrast. It's a study in irony between Simon and the eunuch. Simon was a man of great wealth, and so was the eunuch. But Simon wanted to use his money to buy the power to use so that he could have the great gift of bestowing authority. The eunuch has access to all of this money, but he humbles his heart before the Lord and he cries out for help. It is Simon who says, I am one who is looked upon. I am as great as God. It is the eunuch who says of the text, who does this text speak of? And he believes with all of his heart. Simon believes in verse number 13, but in verse number 37 of your text, you'll find that the text says, if you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. One man has the attention of the people and the money in his hand, but he's fascinated with the signs and the wonders and the miracles and the authority instead of being consumed with Jesus Christ. And another man has the money and the wealth and the power. But along the line, he recognizes that none of that has eternal significance. And he puts his hope and his confidence in Jesus Christ. I only have just a few minutes, but I think it would be helpful for some of you just to kind of help you understand. So in some of your translations, you might have uh, verse number 37. 
of chapter uh, chapter number seven, uh, chapter number eight. Y'all have most of you might have that where it says, "What does hinder me to be baptized?" Verse number thirty six, and then the uh, Philip says, "If you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God," and then they baptize, right? And some of your other versions in here may not have that. And what you probably have is, is a note somewhere in there of explanation of either why it's in there or why it's not in there. So let me just teach on that for a moment. First thing I want you to understand is if you don't have verse number 37 in your Bible, don't go home and burn your Bible, okay? It's not, it's not a, uh, a scheme. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's not that you have not the Word of God. I grew up in a tradition that said, oh, throw all of those Bibles in the aisle and burn them because it doesn't have that verse. No, this is simply a uh, transcript uh, situation And so what you have here is you have many manuscripts, early manuscripts, that do not have that verse in there. And you have some later manuscripts that do have that verse in there. And so what you have is you have access to the entire story. And uh, it takes nothing away from the Word of God. It takes nothing away from the Gospel. He says, Steve, why would some of those later manuscripts, why would some of those uh, want to add in or to put verse number 37? They want to do that as a clarification. Because they too see the contrast between Simon and the eunuch. And they're reading along in verse number 13, and they say, well, Simon believes and he's baptized. But then we read a little bit farther and we see that Peter says, you've got a bad heart and you're filled with gall and bitterness and you need to pray that maybe God would grant you forgiveness and repentance. This guy is not a true believer and the eunuch is. How are we going to show that difference? By we're going to let these people know that when the eunuch says, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? That Philip says, believe with all of your heart. And did you notice when we were reading about Simon, what is the accusation? Your heart is bad. So don't get all fuzzed up. You have access to all manuscripts and some of the translators of all of your Bibles. And many of you in here these days use uh, study Bibles. You know, they're about that thick. And so I've got to study even harder just to say something that's not in the Bible that you're using. Many of your study Bibles will help you, okay? Uh, don't let that challenge your belief in the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Word of God. You have access to it. Why is that verse in there? If you believe with all of your heart. Because the contrast is going forth that Simon had a bad heart and the eunuch had a heart to believe unto righteousness. And what do we learn from that? If we want to be the kind of church that God wants us to be, a church at rest, a church filled with the Holy Spirit, a church that is affecting our community, a church that is right with the Lord, that what God is most concerned about is our heart. God is not so much concerned in sacrifice as He is our heart obedience to Him. Simon looked at all of the trappings and all of the good stuff and all of the all of the uh, the healings and the signs and the wonders and he becomes enamored with all of that wanting that power and Jesus says don't worry about all of that it comes in time worry about having a heart prepared to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ the eunuch has access to everything, but his heart is, tell me about this one who Jesus is. 
What did Jesus tell his disciples? They came back one day kind of skipping in the dale and they said, Jesus, you are not going to believe. We are casting out demons. We are doing all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, it is awesome to be a disciple. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in any of that. Rejoice that your name is written down in heaven. But if you're anything like me, we all have a desire for materialism. We all have a desire for what we can see and touch and hold and put our hands on. We all have a desire to make much of ourselves. And the Bible would say, John the Baptist, that he must increase and we must decrease. See, if we want to be the people and the church that God wants us to be, we've got to have a right heart given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ of humility and grace and mercy. Now back up, if you would, to chapter number 7. Let me just give you a couple little points out of this chapter. And we'll, uh, we'll move on. So, chapter number 9, from Saul to brother Saul. Chapter number 8, Philip and the phony. Chapter number 7, Stephen and his stories. Try to, try to kind of make it rhyme for you so you'd remember. Stephen and his stories. Well, we don't have the time today to back up and read the entire uh, chapter 7. But here's, a, here's something I want you to see. In verse, chapter 6, verse number 14 and 15, look with me if you will. For we have heard Him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on Him, all who were sitting in the council saw His face like the face of an angel. Verse number 13, they put forward false witnesses who said, this man is incessantly speaking against this holy place and the law. In chapter number 7, Stephen is not just telling history, but he is telling past prophecy. And uh, here's how he breaks the chapter down. He first of all speaks about the covenant of Abraham. Then he speaks about the covenant of Moses. And then he speaks about the covenant of David. And lastly, when you get to the end of chapter number 7, he says, Jesus is the fulfillment of Abraham, of Moses, and of David. He is the coming Messiah. They had false charges against him that he was saying things against God and against the temple and against the law. And what does he do in chapter number 7? He defends all of that by saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, of the Mosaic covenant, and of the Davidic covenant. And you are the people who bring accusation against the law. You are the people who will not believe. And at the end of chapter number 7, what do they do? They get enraged in their hearts because He is preaching to them Jesus. And they rush on Him and stone Him to death. Let me just point three things out to you with Stephen that I think would help us this week in our life and moving forward. First thing I want you to understand is that Stephen is the kind of believer who is saturated in the Word of God. Look back at chapter number 7. Look at what Stephen does. The accusations come against him. 
And instead of defending himself, instead of talking about his accomplishments, instead of talking about who he knows, he opens up his heart and he just begins to breathe out and speak out the word of the living God. Look at verse number 2. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he goes on and on. And then look at verse number 9. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him. And then look at verse number 17. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Look at verse number 30. After 40 years, he passed an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of the Mount Sinai and the flame of the burning thorn bush. Look at verse number 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had said. What's going on with Stephen's life? Stephen was the kind of believer who was saturated with the Word of God. And since it's us today, family, can I just put a little bit of application in your life? What kind, of, what kind of time and what kind of effort did you give this last week into reading and understanding the Scripture? Maybe you, maybe you read a verse at Thanksgiving time. What about the rest of the week? Are you the kind... If you would have accusations brought before you, what would your answer be? Would you be able to open your mouth as Stephen was and speak the Word of God about Abraham, about Joseph, about Moses, about David, and about the Messiah? Do you know the Bible well enough in your head and in your heart so that it becomes who you are? It becomes your apologetic. It becomes your answer. It becomes the authority of your life. Uh, Tuesday, we had a guy to the house to do a little bit of work for us, some, some um, uh, heating ducts and that sort of thing. And uh, Chris was his name. I'm not sure if he's here today, but Chris, if you are, he's going to use this. Uh, we had a good conversation. And so I had an opportunity to share the gospel with him. And uh, hey, guys, listen, yeah, it was, uh, I, I don't often get a win, but man, it was, it, it, was, it was really helpful. I had to swallow it down. It's so much easier to preach than it is to share the gospel one-on-one. -on -one. And there, my wife and my little boy are right there in the living room. And I can't miss this opportunity because they hear me every week preaching. We got to share the gospel. And so there I was. I was like, oh, I got to do it. And I got awkward. And, you know, so we start talking and I'm asking him. You know, if he if he has ever trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, we kind of had a back and forth. And and uh, I said to him, I said, well, listen, he was talking about other religions. And I said, you know, one of the differences between Christianity and every other religion is that every other religion tells you you have to do something in order to have an eternal state of bliss. Whereas Christianity says you're a terrible person. Let Jesus do it all for you and you'll have a wonderful place in the future to come. And he, and he thought about that for a minute. And he said, well, he said, listen, it's kind of like this. He said, what if everybody in the world said that two plus two was six and you kind of believed that it was two plus two was four? 
What do you do? Do you believe everybody else in the world? Do you believe what your heart says? Where do you go with that? And man, just like that is the Lord kind of helped me out for just a moment. And I thought about the scripture and that's what I said to him. I said, you know what? That would be a terrible predicament. Except for when it comes to the case of our eternal souls. We need an authority outside of ourselves and outside of every other human being in the world. And it just so happens that there is an authority. It's the Bible. And so I don't have to worry about whether all the rest of the people in the world say 2 plus 2 is 6. And I can't even trust my desperately wicked heart that tells me that 2 plus 2 is 4. I must go to something outside of myself that has the authority of divine nature. And God's Word is the authority for our life. Are you saturated in the Word of God? Are you reading it, loving it, longing for it, listening to it? Hey, I'm going to give you a couple little quick tips. And I, I know I'll finish real quick. I'm sorry. Hey, listen. No, here's, uh, here's something that we use. Um, so my family, we use the New City Catechism. And some of you heard me talk about that. You can get the app on your phone. It's a great way to go through the catechism questions and the scriptures are there. Uh, and you can, you can buy the little pamphlets if you want. It's a great little tool to use with children. There's an, a, animations in there. And so we, we use that. I, I enjoy that a lot. Um, there's a, uh, the, um, daily liturgy is uh, from Quorum Day Church in, in uh, Omaha. Nebraska is uh, they have a, a podcast and it's 10 minutes and they just read to you audibly they read to you an Old Testament uh, scripture a New Testament scripture and a psalm and they have a prayer of confession and uh, a prayer of adoration and they give you the Lord's Prayer they do all that in about 10 minutes sometimes it's 9 sometimes 11 but never longer than that if you have trouble getting the Word of God into your life those are two simple ways that you can do that on the go you can read it as on an app on your phone. You can listen to it as you're eating your breakfast in the morning. Get into the Word of God. Be saturated in God's Word. Let me give you a, let me give you a second thing here. Look at chapter 6, verse number 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power. And then look at chapter number 7, verse 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit... He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. I want to encourage you to be saturated in the Word of God and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in the New Testament, there's both a passive and an active way of understanding that. So in the passive sense, we are to be open to uh, the Spirit of God is the one doing work on our souls. He is changing us. He is taking away our old sin. He is making us into the image of Jesus Christ. He is the one who is actively working on us. So don't ever think for a moment that you're the one getting the job done in your sanctification, all right? As I've told you before, if you ever grow in your Christian life, you think about it when the elephant and the flea cross the bridge and they get to the other side and the flea looks up and says, we really shook that thing. See, that's who you are. The Holy Spirit is the element. He does all the work. He has all the thunder. He is the one at work in you. He is actively working to transform you into the image of Jesus. You're along for the ride. But there is an active sense in which you ought to be pursuing Christ. You ought to be gazing into the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
You ought to be laying down your pride and your arrogance and all of the sin that you know about in your life. And you ought to be longing and looking and worshiping and adoring Jesus. Some of the uh, uh, Puritan preachers were fantastic, but they were boring. And one dude wrote a sermon one time and he said, the expulsive power of a greater adoration. Would that not put you to sleep? (laughs) You know what he really means by that? The more you love Jesus, the less you'll love the things of the world. Maybe we could, maybe we could drag those Puritans into the, uh, hey, old classic praise and worship music. Um, And the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. The more you love Jesus, the less you'll love everything else in this world that pulls you down. Let me give you one last thing. Uh, Let me show you what's what's going on here in the Scripture. Turn back to the end of chapter number 6. Now, put your thinkers on real quick. We'll be done in two minutes. Luke is doing something here as he's writing intentionally. Intentionally. Look at verse number 13 of 6. They put forward false witnesses who said this man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. Can you think of anybody else in the New Testament who was like really good and never sinned, who had false accusations brought before him? Yell it out to me. Jesus. Chapter number 7. Can you think of anybody else who when they are tempted in the New Testament of the devil answers by saying, this is what the Word says, this is what the Word says, this is what the Word says. Yell it out to me. Who else does that in the New Testament? Excellent. Look at verse number uh, look at verse number 59 and verse number 60 of chapter number 7. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." Can you think of anybody else in the New Testament who actually died well, on like a cross somewhere and when he got really close, he said, "Father, receive my spirit." Can you think of who yell that name out for me? Jesus. Verse number 60, then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, and do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Can you think of anybody else in the New Testament that when he died, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Yell it out for me. Here's the last point I'll make. We'll shut her down and we'll have a wonderful time with family and friends this afternoon. But you need this in your heart, folks. The more you walk with God, the more your life will look like Jesus. Not just with what you say, but the way you treat people, with what you think, with what you bring into your life, with how you interact with others. Stephen was full of grace and full of the Holy Spirit and saturated with the Word of God. And his life became a mirror image of the one he loved so dearly. You see, whenever you put fire to steel, it will eventually take on the components of the fire. Did you know that? You take fire and you take a welding rod or you take a welder's fire and you put it to steel and what begins to happen? Just like the fire is hot, the steel becomes hot. Just like the fire has certain shades of color, the longer you put the fire upon the metal, the more it glows. Just like the fire moves with the wind and has a malleability, the more that you put the fire upon the metal, the more the metal will bend and shape into the way that the one who wants it done shapes it. The more you walk with Jesus, the more your life 
will look like His life. And that's the end goal of the Christian wall. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes for a moment? In just a moment, we'll stand and sing a couple of verses together and we'll pray. Close our service for today. Maybe you just want to take a moment and pray. I'm not sure what your busy week has been like. Maybe you got so busy you, you forgot to even be thankful. The weeks that are coming up, many of you are thinking about shopping lists and who's coming over for Christmas and who you don't want to come over for Christmas. you got all kinds of things going on. Why don't you just pray right now? Say, Lord Jesus, help me to be saturated in the Word. Help me to be filled with the Spirit. And help my life to look like Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is the One who died for you. This is the One who raised again. And if you'll give your life to Him, He'll wash your sins away and give you a new heart. You've been listening to Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com.